The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. It's found on page 947 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Would you stand as I read the word of the Lord? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Well, we are continuing our walk through uh, the letter written to the Hebrews, a group of Jewish Christians. What we have before us is um, a word of exhortation. Is what the author calls us. He's writing to exhort, to encourage these believers. And we've now come to what could arguably be um, most uh, spoken of and is the well-known chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, right? If you talk to someone about the book of Hebrews that we're in, most likely what they have reference to is this chapter right here, the great hall of faith, sometimes you hear it called, where over and over and over again, the author is going to continually say, by faith, this person, by faith, this person, as he goes through all the exploits of these men and women of old who truly walked by faith with God. Now, I'm going to hit pause here in a minute, and I'm going to, and I'm going to pray for us, and one of the ways I'm going to pray for us is this. Because this chapter is typically pretty well known, What we can do is approach it with um, an air of, you know, like no big deal. I've heard this before. I get it. I understand it. Yeah, it's all that stuff about faith. I really don't have to tune in and pay attention. But usually what we do is we pluck this chapter out of its context and we just hold up a bunch of people as sort of heroes of the faith. And really what you see is that these men and women never would have called themselves heroes of the faith. They just would have been... ordinary followers of God, seeking to intentionally pursue him in everyday life, walking by faith, trusting God, taking him at his word, because God said it, I believe it, and my life will reflect this reality accordingly. And honestly, what I just said there is what the author says, that's what true faith is. True faith in the living God looks like saying the God who is invisible who manifested himself fully in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has spoken and revealed himself clearly. 
And I'm either going to take him at his word and walk according to his word in obedience to him, living a life of faith, or I'm not. And so what you're going to hear this morning is that these people that we're going to begin to see today and we'll see over the weeks to come are being rolled out as examples of what it looks like to walk by faith firm to the end. All the way until you die, you go into the grave, you close your eyes in death, you open your eyes to see the Savior, your faith, your hope in that moment becoming sight. What does it look like to walk in such a way? Hebrews chapter 11 is that chapter for us, and we're going to see in context here why the author wanted us to go to these men and women and look at them, okay? So the sermon title this morning is just simply called The Walk of Faith. We're going to look at the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 11. The main idea that he's going to lay before us in these seven verses simply comes down to this. Walking by faith in the living God, walking by faith in the living God, people, God's people, will endure to the end. It's a two-step march, so to speak. How do we endure to the end? We endure to the end by walking by faith. How do we walk by faith? We walk by faith in the living God, and for those who are doing so, they're going to be empowered and equipped by God to persevere all the way to the end. These believers that he was originally writing to needed to hear this and know this, and my hunch is that some of us need to hear this and know this this morning as well, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Let's ask him to make words that might be not so fresh because they're a bit common to us, that they would land on our hearts and land on our minds in a very fresh, piercing sort of way so that we can just see how truly good the living God really is, okay? I'm going to invite you to pray those kinds of sentiments along with me right now, and then we're going to turn into the text, okay? So let's pray. Father, our aim is to magnify you, worship you clearly this morning. Our aim is to set the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, at the center of this time this morning. And Holy Spirit, our confession is we We need you. We need you to not only open our eyes to see the words before us with fresh eyes, but we need you to open our ears to hear clearly our need for faith in the living God, a saving faith that translates into a life of continual walking by faith. We need you to open our minds to understand the words on this page here because my hunch is that some of us here are already right on the edge of checking out. We're right on the edge of already wasting the next 40 minutes or so. And I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, by your power would grip hearts, move us to the edge of our seats as it were, turn on our minds to be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm keenly aware of my inability, Father, to do that. That is why I am begging you to do what you love to do, Holy Spirit, which is to do these things so that Jesus would get the glory. It's in the name of Christ the King, I pray. Amen. Well, remember, Hebrews chapter 11 falls right on the tales of Hebrews chapter 10. 
Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? But that's, I say that because one of the ways that we can fail to read our Bibles correctly is by reaching into our Bibles and just plucking something out and then looking at that truth. A lot of truths in Hebrews chapter 11, but Hebrews chapter 11 comes on the hills of Hebrews chapter 10, and Hebrews chapter 10 sets up the context for why the author says we need Hebrews chapter 11. Remember what he just said in Hebrews chapter 10. He just gave them a stern warning that if you aren't drawing near, if you aren't stirring one another up, if you aren't running after God in this way, you could be on the potential path of drift that leads you to a place you don't want to go. It's a stern warning he gave these, these men and women. But he also then turned and said, in order to not go that way, I want you to remember, look back to when you first believed and let that be the fuel that presses you forward to hold fast to the confession of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you will press forward, firm to the end, with confident endurance, enduring to the end, in faith, in Christ, confident that what you're clinging to isn't, isn't some just facile, non, non-reality. It is truly the most real of realities, the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, the author is writing to men and women that he, are, that he is certain that they are believers, true, genuine, born-again believers. He's certain that the better things of salvation belong to not only him, but belongs to these men and women. He has no problem looking at these men and women and saying, we, me and you, we are those who have faith and as a result are saved. That's literally the last verse in Hebrews chapter 10. We are those who have faith and are saved. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But as the letter has shown, these believers were growing wobbly in their faith. Instead of an increasing assurance of things hoped for, that is certain of things unseen, they were increasingly distracted with the realities of the, just the visible here and now right before them. Remember, what were they wanting to drift back to? They were wanting to drift back to the sights and the tastes and the touches and the smells of this this pursuit of God. They're wanting to go back to the, the temple, the earthly temple. They're wanting to go back to earthly sacrifices. They're wanting to go back to earthly priests. They're wanting to go back to earthly priesthoods. So much so, in this increasing distraction, they were coming to this place where instead of the things of this world growing strangely dim, they were growing steadily attractive, resulting in a faith that was growing crippled, and weakening. And so the author says, because I know who we are in Christ, because we are not those shrinking back to the destruction of our souls eternally, but we are those confident, enduring, looking to Christ, better sacrifice, better blood, better priest, better hope, new covenant. We are those people. Let's press forward in these things marching forward in this reality. I don't want you to grow crippled and weakened in your faith. I don't want you limping along in this way. Therefore, I want to turn your gaze to some examples. I want to turn our gaze to some examples this morning, to some real-life examples of people who, walking by faith in the living God, what did they do? They 
endured to the end. And what you're going to see is that over chapter 11, this wasn't just like easy faith. There were struggles, life, death, trials, sufferings, hardships, radical acts of obedience that these men and women stepped into when all they had was merely God's word saying, I want you to go and do this. We're going to see this shortly in Abraham. Abraham, pack it up and go somewhere else. Why? Because I told you to. Okay. We're going to see here this morning Noah. We know the Noah story too well to be wowed by the Noah story anymore. Noah, I know there's no body of water around. I know you live in the, misery, in the middle of a dry land, but I want you to go and start building a gigantic boat. Why? Because judgment's coming. And my form of salvation for you is going to be in that boat. Okay. And if you know your Bible well enough to know, in Genesis chapter 6, he walked by faith for 120 years from the time that God said the judgment of the flood is coming to when it actually came was 120 years. Most of us struggle to walk by faith for 120 seconds. So we need help from Noah. That's what he's doing right now. He's saying, pay attention, scoot forward a little bit. These people are not perfect. If you know the Noah story enough to know, he pulled some pretty big uh-ohs right after coming out of salvation in the ark. He pulled some knucklehead moves. He's not saying these here are like people who are just perfect and never sin. What he's saying is no, he's actually a lot like you, right? You and I are not perfect people and you and I have sinned. But it's not impossible to walk by faith in the living God as people who are imperfect. So he says, pay attention, scoot forward. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to see that these men and women who walked before you, who endured to the end, these are men and women who not only talked the talk of faith, but they walked the walk of faith, and they walked the walk of faith with such certain assurance that what God promises, what God says, can be fully trusted because he who promised is faithful. That is really going to be, what you need to understand here is that when verse 1 talks about the realities of faith, this is not the full-orbed, multifaceted definition of what faith is all about according to the New Testament. It is a really robust reality, this thing called faith. He, the author, is simply zooming in on a couple certain facets of the faith diamond and saying what we need to understand is what does it look like to endure to the end. It looks like recognizing that because God is a God who cannot lie, because God is a God who always tells the truth, because God is a God who has revealed certain things concerning himself, judgment to come, need for salvation in him, the way to avoid the wrathful judgment to come is by by fleeing to him, he's made these certain things known, we will either hear that and say, I don't trust that God, I don't believe the promise that these realities are going to come to pass, and I'm going to choose to be unfaithful to that and do what I want to do, or I will walk by faith, trusting in the promises of the God who cannot lie, and so when he says something's going to happen, I'm going to take him at his word. And my life reflects that accordingly in a life of it's the O word that we don't like anymore, obedience. 
obedience. They need to remember that men and women have been walking by faith in this way, the way of faith, ever since the beginning. He's going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. I mean, we're, we're only one chapter beyond, beyond the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And he's simply going to say, what I'm encouraging you to do now, Jewish Christians, I'm just encouraging you to step on the path and continue that walk and journey that's been going on ever since a man named Abel all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. So rolling out this gallery of faithful followers of God, the Hebrews are just simply being encouraged to look back again in order to press forward, enduring firm to the end. Stay the course among the faithful sojourners who have walked by faith before them. So with all that as the background, the author swings into the best-known chapter of this letter, I'm convinced, Hebrews chapter 11, and we roll into point number one, the nature of faith. What is the nature of faith? How is it described? What, is it, what does it look like? How does he define it here? Look starting in verse one, the nature of faith. Now, he says, faith, faith. Faith is the what? Assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Four, verse two, by it, the people of old received their commendation. So what is faith? What does it look like? What's interesting about this very religious word, faith, is it's still a word that will carry a religious word, a biblical word, that will carry a lot of freight still in our modern-day culture. A lot of words don't. Uh, repent, sin, Jesus himself. You take this kind of biblical language in the culture at large, everyone says, don't want it, don't want anything to do with it. But one word that still echoes among the halls of secular culture is this concept of faith. So the danger here is when he starts talking about now faith is the, we begin to maybe grab unbiblical realities and shove it down into what the author is saying here. We need to let the Bible define what, what faith is about. So how can we do that? We can do that by recognizing what faith is not. So of all the religious words that still float around in our culture, one that still gets a lot of love is that word of faith, but defined by our culture, the concept of faith fails to line up with how the Bible portrays it. The world will describe faith as a feeling, that, that funny feeling you get when you're just sort of like leaning into something by faith, so it's a very feelings-oriented definition. You'll hear people talk about describing faith as those people of faith, those who just send positive vibes steeped in good thoughts when things go bad. You see that on Facebook all the time. You know, hey, things are going bad. Life's going, going rough. Just if you, and this is the language, if, if you're people who pray, if you're people of faith, send some good vibes my way. And it's like, I, I don't even, you know, I think I know what they're getting at, but it's like, I don't even know what that means. You know what I mean? Like, what, what does that mean? I, but that's the language of faith that's being dealt there in the secular sphere, right? When you, when you see that going on. Or having faith often means just having faith in yourself. Have a little faith. Translation, believe in yourself. A little bit more deeply. You've got little faith. You need bigger faith because you have little faith. You're really not getting the job done. So believe in yourself more. Have big faith. Get the job done. And so if you press someone on what they mean by having faith in yourself, really it just boils down to that hollow sentiment that faith is just something that you've got to conjure up in yourself. It's the bootstrap, white knuckle, grin and bear, get the, get the job done kind of reality. The radio will tell us that we just got to have faith. Those of us of a certain vintage know George Michael saying a famous song. Just got to have faith, 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 right? Okay, got to have faith. Well, what does that even mean? Have faith in what? 
What do you mean, gotta have faith? He says you need to have it. Have it in what, though? Gotta have faith? Usually it's just sort of the milk toast mantra that basically equates to just having faith and faith. I don't even know what that, you know, whatever that means. But the biblical definition of faith is just absolutely radically different. Biblical faith is no navel-gazing matter. It's no turning in on yourself. It's no, though, pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. Just have a little faith. You know, have, throw a little hope into the ether and hope it sticks, and then maybe you can press forward with, with life when the situation gets, gets tough. That's not the biblical definition of faith. No, verse 1 says, faith is an assurance, and it's a conviction. That lays hold of your soul in such a way that your life looks radically different as a result of walking by faith. It's assurance of things hoped for. It's conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith, which feels confident, endurance, firm to the end, is faith that looks to the future. Assurance of things hoped for. Being certain of unseen realities. Conviction of things you can't see realities that you know are going to come to pass because God has said they're going to come to pass. Things like one day being completely delivered from sin, is that not a hope that you and I have for those of us who are here in Christ this morning? I have the hope that one day I'm going to be completely delivered from sin. I have the hope of one day possessing eternal life. I have the hope of one day being clothed with a resurrection body. I have the hope of one day coming to my eternal home in heaven, void of tears, void of sorrows, no more sin, no more death, fully enjoying God for all eternity face to face. And how do I come to that conclusion? I'm walking by faith in that moment because I've got no empirical way to come and prove that I've got a half cup full of measure of eternity waiting for me. I can't pull out a tape measure and give you some empirical evidence for this. It's realities unseen, promised by God, that are going to come about because of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, because of what he accomplished as our great high priest, and that fuels a hope in me that solidifies and concretizes itself into an assurance of things hoped for. He's saying that's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. These are things hoped for, of which we are sure, unseen realities, of which we are convinced. Why? Because of what I said earlier, God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23, 19. He has promised, and he who promised is faithful. That was back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Thus, our certain assurance rests on something. This isn't faith in faith. This is faith that has an object. And that object isn't a something. It is a someone. The living God. After all, verse 3, he says, he is the creator of heaven. This living God. He created heaven and earth. Created the universe by his word. He says there in verse 3. Making what is seen and visible to our eyes out of things that are unseen. Ultimately, what he's saying is he's just pulling out an example of how we live by faith in the present tense. We understand the doctrine of creation by faith, says the author. We look around right now and we see stuff, visible things, seen that you can touch, manifest tangible realities. 
But if you keep backtracking it and backtracking it and backtracking it and backtracking it and backtracking it all the way into Genesis chapter 1, what do you have? In the beginning, God created. I wasn't there when he did that. Were you there when he did that? No. And the biblical doctrine of creation says that it wasn't like he had just like a big pile of wood and a bunch of nails that he went to Home Depot before he started doing this, got some plywood and all these sorts of things and just started banging, hammering, and sawing. No, the big fancy turn of phrase is ex nihilo, out of nothing. He said, I want there to be light. And because he spoke it with his word, nothingness became something in the form of light, in the form of land, in the form of animals, in the form of birds, in the form of sky and moons and suns and stars and universes and galaxies and the infinitude of all the world that he created. He was just pulling it out of nothing, nothing, nothing. We come to the settled conclusion that Genesis 1-1 is true by faith. Unseen realities spoken into existence made visible by faith. We weren't there when God created everything out of nothing, but we are certain of things not seen. And if we are certain of things not seen, then we can most definitely be sure of what we hope for. Do you see the argument he's making? If you can come to the settled conclusion that Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, unseen realities were created and brought into existence by the word of God and his power. If you can lay hold of that reality by faith, then it is foolish to not then look forward to Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 and the hope of things yet unseen and not lay hold of that by faith. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22 stitched together. We lay a hold of both realities, both unseen realities, both realities for which we hope for by faith. By faith. In other words, if we can look back to creation with faith and what we have not seen, then we can look forward with hope to a new creation when Jesus, our great high priest, is going to rule and reign forever just as he promised. How do you know Jesus is going to rule and reign forever? Have you seen Jesus rule and reign forever? I haven't. Not in the fullness of that, that statement. So why do you have a hope in that? You have a hope in that because you're laying hold of that hope by faith. That because God said that there is coming a day when the Son of God, cloaked in flesh, died on a cross, and dying on that cross, he accomplished something and there is going to come a day as a result when every knee will bow. And every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You either lay hold of that by faith or you look at that and say that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. The author is looking at his original audience and us saying I want you to be in the former category laying a hold of that glorious reality. So, it's these people who walked in a certain way. I want you to walk in a certain way. I want you to simply join the people of old, verse 2, who received their commendation for walking by faith in the same way. So, the time has come now. Well, who are these people? He says, let me just start rolling them out for you, okay? So, we turn to the walk of faith. Who are these people who walked the walk of faith? Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Three people. He says, first, let's just take a gander at a man named Abel. Look at verse 4 in your text. 
Hebrews 11 and verse 4. Here's someone who walked by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The first three examples of walking by faith in the living God are found in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Abel, Genesis 4, Enoch, Genesis 5, Noah, Genesis 6, and a couple chapters following. So the author dips into Genesis 4 first, looking at the man Abel. And there you find an interaction that's only a four verses long. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And in that interaction between Abel, you find him talking and interacting with his brother Cain. And these are two brothers, Abel and Cain, who are both bringing an offering to God. And from Genesis chapter 4, we learn that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And on a particular occasion, each, Cain and Abel, both brought an offering to the Lord. Cain's offering was an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. But while both brothers, and this is the key point the author wants you to pay attention to, while both brothers brought an offering before the living God, they did not receive the same response from God. So the picture is this. It's time for Cain and Abel to approach God in worship. They come bringing sacrifices and offerings. One man's worship received by the Lord. One man's worship not received by God the Lord. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's offering. Genesis 4, though, gives us no reason why this was the case. The author doesn't go on and say, and this is why Abel's was received, and this is why Cain's was not received. The insight we get into the why of the Genesis 4 reality is right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Our author tells us that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And what made Abel's, Abel's sacrifice more acceptable is that it was done so by faith. So you start stitching it together. It's by faith that he offered this. So what you begin to see as you peel back the layers of the Cain-Abel interaction in Genesis chapter 4 is this. While both knew they was called to worship God, while both knew it required offerings and sacrifices, one of them was going through the motions, approached God in his own way, not by faith in what the word of God and the God of the word was talking about, Cain. And one of them said, God has said there's a right way to approach him. There's a right way to come before him. I'm going to take him at his word. And by faith, I'm going to be obedient to what he's called me to do in that moment. Abel's approach before God was different from Cain's approach in that while both were approaching God in worship, bringing sacrifices and offerings, Abel did so with a heart that took God at his word. Namely, proper approach before God must be on the basis of sacrifice. How do we know that proper approach before God is to be on the basis of sacrifice? I am positive it's because Adam and Eve told them and taught their boys that how did adam and eve come to know that the only proper way for sinners to approach a holy god is by sacrifice it's because in genesis chapter 3 adam and eve received the curse for the sin of not walking by faith in the garden choosing to go their own way they did not take god at his word and said we will take our own word as more powerful and important than god's word they fall into sin they are naked they were now ashamed 
They try to cover their shame with leaves. But then what happens at the end of Genesis chapter 3? It says they were clothed with the skin of animals. I don't know you. I don't know about many animals just sort of like hopping out of their skin and just giving them up to people freely. How were they clothed by the skins of animals? They were clothed by the skins of animals because those animals died in their place. Blood sacrifice is how Adam and Eve had their nakedness and shame and guilt for their sin covered and clothed. And I've got no doubt they turned around when Cain and Abel were born and said, hey, we know a little too intimately the realities of needing a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to be able to approach the living God. Little boys, if you are going to approach God, the living God, in a way that brings him honor, you need to approach him in a way that is banking by faith on the blood of a sacrifice. Cain said, don't believe it, as evidenced by his approach. Abel said, by faith, I'm just going to take God at his word. And that's how he comes before the living God. You see, Abel believed these things and approached God by faith through a blood sacrifice. Cain, it appears, did not. And as a result, Abel was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and Cain was rejected. This is why, he says there at the end of verse 4, through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. Dead Abel is still speaking today. Abel proves speaks to us, voices to us, that for any man, for any woman who desires to approach God in God's way by faith are going to be accepted by God. Abel's voice speaks to us today that you cannot approach God in any way you want. There's a lot of people who are going to die once, then comes the judgment, Hebrews chapter 9, And they're going to stand before God banking on some faith in other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to say, well, I thought I was going to be able to have eternal life with you because I did something, fill in the blank, anything other than Jesus. You cannot approach God in any way you want. Abel shows us this. We will either walk the path of Cain and seek life with God apart from the better sacrifice of Jesus, proving ourselves faithless, or, or... Or we will walk the path of Abel by faith in the living God, trusting in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Friends, today, right now, Abel still speaks to me. Abel still speaks to you. Because the world is full of Cain's and Abel's. The question is, which one am I? There's some of us here this morning taking the path of Cain. You're in the Cain family lineage. And you are by not faith, self-faith, not faith in God, trying to earn your way to God, approach him not in the way that God has set. Some of us here by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ find ourselves having been transferred out of the lineage of Cain into the lineage of Abel where we are walking by faith in a blood sacrifice to make us right with God, more specifically the blood sacrifice of the better priest 
who offered the better blood, instituting the better covenant, making the better way for sinners to know salvation in Christ. The question is, which one are you? Are you Cain or are you Abel? Are you Cain or are you Abel? He moves on. Enoch, verses 5 and 6. Return to the man Enoch, of whom we read, starting in verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Pretty trippy. 2 Kings 2, I think, Elijah, if I remember right. I always get Elijah and Elisha mixed up. I'm pretty sure it's Elijah if my mind is remembering right. Same sort of thing, just tooling along in his chariot, and woo, off he goes into heaven. It's like, what just happened? He's in heaven now. He didn't die. That's just where he's at. Same thing with Enoch. Now, he says, before, though, he was taken up to heaven, he, Enoch, was commended as having pleased God. Well, what does that mean, having pleased God? Well, what we know is that without faith, it is impossible to please him. So if Enoch was found to be a man who pleased God, we know Enoch had true faith in the living God. That's why he was able to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Enoch said, sign me up on that one. I am wholeheartedly assured with a conviction that is as sure as the day is long that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you go back into Genesis chapter 5, and what you find out is that Genesis 5 is mainly a big genealogy and buried in the genealogy of this guy fathered this guy, and then he fathered that guy, and then he fathered that guy, and it's just a one big list. Then there's a three-verse pause right in the middle where we learn a couple pieces of information concerning a man named Enoch. And what stands out about Enoch is that while he lived during a time when everyone was intent on pleasing themselves, Enoch was a man intent on pleasing God. But it wasn't always this way. So if you go back into Genesis chapter 5, what you'll begin to read is that for the first 65 years of his life, Enoch walked to please himself. But then Enoch had a boy, and his boy was named Methuselah. And only then, after having Methuselah, did he walk with God. And some of the parents said yes and amen. Right? You come to Jesus as a single man, a single woman, you're like, yeah, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. Then you get married, and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. Then you start having kids, and you're like, oh, Lord Jesus, am I a sinner? I don't know what was going on in Methuselah's life. For 65 years, he was doing his own deal. He was living, living life for himself, apparently not wanting to have anything to do that constituted faith in the living God. After all, who really gives a rip about those things? And then somehow Methuselah was born, and that event, after 65 years, translates into him walking by faith. So much so was this the identifier of the life when people said, who is Enoch? What is he about? What does he love? What does he desire? What is he into? What does he care for? What does he eat, sleep, breathe? They encapsulates all of this by saying Enoch was a man who walked with God. Three verses are given in detail to this man's life in the course of three verses. Two different times it says he walked with God. He walked with God. This is what he was about. He was all about walking with God. And then all of a sudden, one day, while he was walking with God here on earth, he was not found because God had taken him, and his walk with God just translated, boop, right into a walk with God in heaven. His faith became sight, and that walk just kept on going. I'm telling you right now, Enoch is walking with God in heaven, although his faith has now been turned to sight. It says that he walked with God for 300 years. He died at the age 365, 
no walk with God, 65, 300 years. Again, I go back to the 120 and 120 seconds. Most of us have trouble walking with God in a consistent manner for three minutes, let alone 300, 300 years. In other words, Enoch's walk of faith in the living God was so consistent, so intimate, so close, so pleasing that one day his earthly walk just rolled right into a heavenly walk. He was taken up so that he should not see death. The invisible, unseen realm was supreme reality to Enoch. Enoch was a man assured of things hoped for. Enoch was a man convinced of things not seen. The unseen reality was supreme, supreme to him. And that supreme reality that he hoped for, that supreme reality of life with God, translated into a present tense walk. Day in, day out. For 300 years, I'm guessing about 299 and a half of them were pretty unordinary. Just, or I'm sorry, pretty ordinary. Just another day in the hood, but he walked. By faith. He was convinced of things unseen, absolutely sure of things hoped for, that he lived his life in complete trust, complete reliance upon God. His life was a pleasing faith because even though no one had ever seen God, John chapter 1, verse 18, Enoch believed that he exists. Someone had come up to Enoch and go, why do you live your life in this way? I believe in God, prove it, point it out, show it to me. Bring it, take my, my, I can't. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but Enoch believed that he exists. Thus, because he believed that he exists, the consistent pattern of his life was that he drew near to God, and he drew near to God with the assurance that God rewards those who seek him. You see, those who possess true faith walk with God day after day, firm to the end like Enoch. Their testimony is like that of Enoch. Where there was once a time when my life was absent of faith in the living God, but now my life is defined by faith in the living God. Like Enoch, I now have a God-given desire to draw near to God in dependent trust. Like Enoch, my deepest desire is to please God because, Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the question is, like Enoch, do you have two chapters in your life? Do you have the B.C. days, the before Christ days, and the A.C. days, the after Christ days? Is there two chapters in your life where you can say, I once walked in a manner that was pleasing to self for X amount of years. Then God intervened, he opened my eyes, I turned from sin, I repented, and I believed what he says is going to happen for those who do not trust in him. I believed that there is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that's what defines chapter 2 of my life. For some of us, this chapter one, chapter two reality, it was a decisive act. Like you can go in your mind and say on this day, at this time, at this hour, at this place, I went from chapter one to chapter two. 
For others of us, it was a slower realization over time. But the point is right now, here this morning, listening to my voice, you can say this. There once was a time when I was lost, but now I'm telling you I am found. There once was a time when I was blind to the realities of Christ, but I'm telling you right now, before you, I can see the realities of Christ. Once I was faithless, but now I am counted among the faithful because my hope of salvation is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That wasn't always the case in my life. But in December of, of, night, of December of 2000, the Lord Jesus Christ interrupted the life of a sophomore down at SIU Carbondale. And for the first 19 years of my life, my life was a pursuit of selfish pleasure. I thought thoughts spiritual. I spoke things spiritual. I was leading a Christian ministry for goodness sake, speaking other gospel truth things to them, but I didn't believe it myself. That's my testimony. And then in December of 2000, I took several high school students downtown to a thing called Youth Encounter, and an evangelist preached the gospel, and God pierced my soul and saved me. And now I have a chapter two in my life. So the question I have for you is, do you have two chapters in your life? Do you have two chapters in your life? He's not done. He's going to pop forward once more to Noah. Noah, who, by faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this, by this belief, by this faith, by this obedience, walking, trusting that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. What did Noah do? He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The true faith on display in Noah's life was the firm conviction of things not seen. The man was building a gigantic ark in the middle of a desert because God told him to. People are going, dude, what are you doing on day one? Year one. Year 10. Year 50. Year 100. Year 119 in the 364th day. Noah is a psycho. You know God told you this 100, 120 years ago? And I have trouble remembering when I did 12 months ago. A hundred uh, uh, interactions I had with God, 120 years. You're telling me you're living your life right now, Noah, in accordance with what God told you 120 years ago? Yes. I'm taking God at his word. He said judgment's going to come. So I'm telling you, I'm building this thing. And in the building of this thing, the radical obedience of this man condemned those around him because the building of the ark stood like a giant sign in the middle of the desert among all these people that there was someone walking by faith in the living God and the lack of radical obedience by everyone else proved that they are walking by radical unfaith, unbelief in the living God. The sign of the ark magnified unbelief in their life for the many and for the very, very, very few. The sign of the ark stood as a radical sign of complete, absolute, certain, assured faith in the living God. And the sign of the ark, I'm telling you, points forward, fast forwards right to the sign of the cross. And the cross stands today as a sign that many people look at this and go, I know what you Christians get worked up about. I know the whoop-de-doo behind Easter. I know you talk about a better blood. That's weird. I know you talk about Jesus. 
dead man, who really cares? You talk about the stuff he said. You talk about the stuff you do. You even worship this guy. I see what you talk about when you talk about the cross, and it stands as a sign of foolishness to me. This is foolishness to me. I don't want anything to do with this thing. And you draw that conclusion, and you draw that conclusion exposing the unfaith in your life. But the author is extending the invitation to you right now. Enoch used to be that way. There was a time when Abel was that way. There was a time when Noah was that way. But they came to the place where they said, because God has said, this right here is your hope of salvation. This right here. And the man, the God-man who specifically died on that cross, who rose again from the grave, who defeated Satan's sin and death, you can come like the ark, hiding yourself in him and find refuge from the judgment to come that's what Noah was doing all those years he was inviting people to come I think it's second Peter that refers to uh, uh, Noah as a herald of righteousness a preacher of righteousness so he's out there like guys judgment's coming y'all you don't have to face the judgment you can get in the ark and be saved. This is God's form of salvation for you. <laughs> Guys, you, you don't have to do it. Year one, year 10, year 50, year 100, year 120. Guys, flee the wrath to come. Guess who climbed into the ark on year 120? Eight people. Everyone else said, the guy's a fool. The guy's an absolute fool building a boat out here and then the floodgates opened up. The world was consumed by the judgment. By tangent here, do you recognize? See, God gets a lot. Listen to me, please. God gets a really, really bad rap. The Old Testament God is God being a God of wrath, a God of hate, a God of judgment. I don't want anything to do with that God. But did you hear what I just said? God bore patiently with a world for 120 years so that at the perfect time the salvation he promised in the ark in Genesis 5 would be there for people to step into and be saved and if you go and read Genesis 4 5 and 6 you'll find out that it wasn't like you know it was just one person doing like a little itty bitty Itty bitty little white lie kind of sin. It was complete and absolute debauchery and full-blown defiance of the living God. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out for a century and 20 years. And then what we discover in Genesis chapter 5 is there will come a day when God's patience will come to a close. The flood of judgment will come. And you will stand before God, either as a man or a woman, in the ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you'll find yourself as a man or a woman outside the ark, bearing the full-blown wrath that you rightly deserve for your lack of faith. Really, Pastor John? Really? Lack of faith is a sin that will condemn me to be destroyed in hell for all eternity? Yes. Yes. If the worst thing you can say before God on that day of judgment when you die, when you close your eyes in death and you open your eyes before the living God, 
if you somehow are like this magical person, I don't think this person exists, but for point of illustration, if you're the magical person who can say, I close my eyes in death, I open my eyes, I'm standing now before God, my creator, and my judge, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out the Rolodex of sins that are on there, and all I have is a number one, period, unbelief, and that is it. Is that enough to condemn you to hell for eternity? The scriptures said yes. That is why, like Abel, Noah is still speaking to you today. And what is Noah saying to you, beloved? What is Noah saying to you? Noah is saying, get in the ark. Get in the ark. A boat? No. The ark is a type that points forward to the salvation provided for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah was saved by faith in God's promised salvation. What was God's promised salvation in his scenario? The ark. He stepped into it. Floods came. He was saved. I'm not asking you to step into some wooden ship out in a desert. I'm asking you to step into saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the better ark of salvation. And Noah is just saying, come, come, please don't linger. Why would you do it? Why are you going to linger and bear the wrath of God, the rightful judgment you deserve for your sins, when you can, by faith, look to the signpost of the cross, and more specifically, the Savior who died on it, and find salvation, eternal salvation for your soul. But you got to know it's an act of faith. It's assurance of things hoped for. It's a conviction of something unseen. I wasn't back there when Romans were pinning Jesus to a tree, but I'm trusting that by faith, this is God's answer for the salvation of my soul. Because God said judgment was coming, Noah took God at his word. Because God said construct an ark for your salvation for, from this judgment, he obeyed by faith. And like the flood came in Noah's day, bringing with it the judgment of God. There's a coming flood of judgment that none will be able to escape. Unless they, you, me, men, women, black, white, old, young, children, rich, poor, find themselves hidden in the sinner's only safe refuge from divine judgment, the better ark of salvation, Jesus Christ. Like Abel's faith, which still speaks, you can say, we can say Noah's faith does so as well. The question is, brother, sister, man, woman, do you have faith like this? See, all of us are trusting in something right now. I'm just telling you we are. Some of us are trusting in nothing, but that's actually an act of faith. You can't escape this thing called faith. Some of us are decidedly agnostic. Some of us are decidedly atheistic in what you're doing in this moment by declaring, I do not believe the thing you're saying. You can't even escape the word believe in this sentence. By saying, I do not believe in the living God, you are saying, I believe in nothing. You are exercising faith. All of us are trusting in something. And what are you trusting? What kind of faith is your faith right now? Is it a self-saving faith that is really no faith at all? A self-saving faith that says no thank you to God's provision for your salvation? Or is it a self-denying faith that rests on the certain assurance of God's promise that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? And I don't care who you say you are, I'm the chief of those sinners. Like I'll go to bat with you on that one. And you're like, no, 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 I'll go to bat with you on that one. And we all get the point. 
when you come to see the person who deserves to be at the top of the center list is me, myself, and I. It's the man. It's the woman in the mirror. You will come to the place where you say, I need a Savior. And then the promise, the promise, the absolute, certain, sure promise of Scripture is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And when your eyes are open to see, I am a sinner, don't lean on self-faith. Deny self. Pick up your cross. Run after Christ. Look to him by faith. A self-denying faith that believes I will be rightly destroyed by God's judgment if I don't take him at his word and trust in his merciful rescue from the judgment to come. In Noah's day, those on the ark were saved by faith, and those outside the ark were destroyed by unbelief. Today, these two categories are no different. It's the third time I'm asking you, pleading with you to consider this question, which one are you? Are you outside the ark of Christ, or are you inside the ark of Christ, if you'll allow me to use the language that way? Abel, Enoch, Noah, still speaking today. My hope is the Lord Jesus Christ has pierced your heart and is causing you to wrestle with these truths, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you. We trust you. We need to be reminded of these realities concerning faith. My hope is that in the midst of the speaking, in the midst of these truths, that you will make it just very clear where we are at. Help us discern, Lord. Help us to be... If we are men and women saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we took him out of his word that he is a savior who delights to save sinners and I am a sinner who's come to him to be saved, then I have the promise I will be saved. Lord, if that is us, would you empower us to live our life according to that faith? Some of us are here this morning and we are more like Cain and not like Abel. We're still in chapter one of our life. There hasn't been a chapter two. We're outside of the ark. We're not in the ark. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to do your powerful work of salvation in the souls of men and women. Lord, there's men and women in our lives who need to hear these things. So help us to walk by faith, to go out these doors into the next six days and 22 hours with you and salvation found in you on our lips. Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.